All right. Well, as you can see on the screen, we're jumping back into our study on um, our series of spiritual gifts. This is week four in this series. We're calling it Gifted for Growth because that's the idea. The Lord has given each of us a spiritual gift or maybe even multiple spiritual gifts to be used, not for ourselves, but for others, for others in the body, to grow the body, um, to use those spiritual gifts so the body is, is matured and the body grows to the way God intends. So, let's just start with a quick review. Uh, we've got to be really brief because we've got a lot to cover today. This is going to be just forewarning. It's going to be another data dump, okay? Um, so, what is a spiritual gift? Hit me. What is one? What is it? All right, you've got to wake up. Let's go. A God-given ability, right? Okay, for what? To edify the church? Yep, great. Working definition. A spiritual gift is a specific God-given ability to build up the church, right? That's the, the core of it. Now, we, could, we spent the first week really beating that up and looking at a bunch of different passages, and really the second week as well. Um, on really what is a spiritual gift and how should we understand this. So if you missed it, um, go back and check those out. That's what a spiritual gift is. And last week, um, we really began to dial in on the individual gifts. So which one did we cover last week? Apostleship, right. So we looked at that. um, And again, as we get into some of these gifts, especially on the front end, the ones that are called the miraculous gifts or the gifts that there's, there's a debate on whether or not they continue or they cease. So one group would say, called continuationism, that the prophetic and miraculous gifts described in Acts and 1 Corinthians continue to function today. That's a definition from Matt Wehmeyer, not that Matt Wehmeyer thinks that. Okay, uh, Prophetic and miraculous gifts described in Acts and 1 Corinthians continue to function today. So we looked last week at apostleship, and some people would say that that continues Today we're going to look at prophecy, and some people would also say that continues today. All right, the other side of the coin, the other view, um, again, just talking about the, the two major views, is cessationism, which as you can tell by the name means the prophetic and miraculous gifts were unique to that first century, to the apostolic era, and therefore they have ceased. We looked at that a little bit more in depth last week, um, so I won't go over it now, but The gist of it is, I want to orient you to those two positions, but what I want to do with these gifts is I want to to work from the data to the system, right? Versus the system, and start with the system and read it back into the data. So I gave you a lot, I gave you a lot of data on apostleship last week, and we came, or at least I came to the conclusion that the gift of apostleship has ceased. So, we're pivoting today from apostleship to the next gift on the list, and that gift is prophecy. So, where do we see that in Scripture? Um, It's pretty easy. We can just jump to the the two texts we used last week for apostleship, because prophecy follows apostleship. So, you see this in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4.11 says, He gave the apostles and the prophets, there it is, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So there's a clear reference to apostles as a gift to the church. And then over in 1 Corinthians 12, again, sort of similar order, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, so there it is, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and other things. So um, there's a lot of other places we could have looked at, but, but that... I was able to keep my slide just the same and change the underline. So, that's what I did. Just give you some examples of of where this is at. So, as we're headed into this, I just want to give you a heads up, you know, as we're we're coming in. Most people that would say that prophecy continues today um, would define it in really one of two ways. Okay? So, just headed into our discussion today on, on the gift of prophecy. Basically, some would say, one, one group would say that, that its prophecy is really nothing more than sort of spirit-led preaching. Okay? It's equated with preaching. They might even appeal to the fact that, hey, many prophets in the, in the past, like that's what they did. They were just preachers. Like they were preaching. It was very rare that they were giving you know, forward-looking oracles into, into the future. 
So some would say it's kind of spirit-led preaching, or, or we would say non-revelatory in that sense. So then spirit-led preaching can have some errors in it, right? You know, I might, I might make a mistake whenever I, I say something. Uh, so I have to kind of go back and, and check that. So some would say spirit-led preaching, non-revelatory. But then others would say there's sort of this second, it's, prophecy is it's not this on the same level as Scripture, um, so it's sort of this second tier revelation, kind of one below, one a tier below Scripture, not on par with it, but it's it's revelation nonetheless. Most will say that this revelation can be mixed with error, meaning it's not always accurate. So we need to weed that out. We need to weed out the truth from the error in this sort of second tier prophecy. And one public figure, one, uh, one um, popular scholar is Wayne Grudem, who argues that he says, quote, prophecy is based on, hear that language, based on revelation from the Holy Spirit, yet not possessing the authority of God's own word. So that's shorthand, second tier. Okay? He says it's based on, and he puts revelation in quotes, revelation from the Holy Spirit, yet not possessing the authority of God's own word. So I want to give you that up front because I'm going to take a different view um, and I think argue a biblical view, but I want, to, I want to do what we did last week. I want you to start with this kind of in your mind and then I want, to, I want us to build up going from the Old Testament into the New and see how does the Bible use this term, how, do, how should we understand what prophecy is. Okay, so we're going to ask and answer four questions today. That's where we're headed. Four questions about the gift of prophecy. So number one, what do we learn about prophecy in the Old Testament? It's important that we start here because unlike apostleship, um, prophecy is actually something that we see quite frequently in the Old Testament. So it's important that we, that we start there to kind of see what, what kind of background does the Old Testament give us as we're coming into the New Testament and the gift of prophecy now in the New Covenant. All right, so again, I told you last week, this is going to be a lot of information, a lot of text of Scripture. So if you want, you can just listen and then email me later for my notes and I'll send you everything I've got, you know, on this. All right, so I just want you to kind of feel the... Feel the cumulative weight of these texts of Scripture, okay? So first thing we learn is maybe kind of an overview. Prophecy in the Old Testament is the reception and the dissemination of revelation from God. You're like, hold on. Wow, it's like it is 9.35 in the morning, okay? Why are you throwing those big words at me? Okay, it involves receiving and the kind of passing out or disseminating revelation from God. It might be written down. It might be proclaimed. It might be sealed up, you know, if you're Daniel. But it involves this reception of revelation and then usually this dissemination of it to others, to Israel, to the nations. But at its core, it is the reception of revelation. This revelation might look a little bit different based on the context, but that's the common denominator. The prophet is given God's words and is expected, he's actually commanded to say them. So, again, he may proclaim, but it's, it's very different than preaching, where I stand up here and I have a text of Scripture and I exposit this text to you. The text of Scripture is what's been revealed to the prophet that he is now communicating to the people. So we see this very clearly. I've written down Deuteronomy 18 here. Um, we could go to a lot of places in the Old Testament, but here God predicts that he's going to raise up a future prophet who's going to be like Israel's greatest prophet, Moses. Okay? So if you think about prophets in the Old Testament, the first one that comes to your mind is most likely Moses. He is the arguably one of the greatest prophets. So here's what Deuteronomy 18, uh, starting in verse 15, says. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, it's Moses talking, from among you, from your brothers, 
It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. So basically they were asking for an intermediary. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And, here's what he says, I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. So, this is Israel's greatest prophet, Moses, and he's saying God's going to raise up another prophet like me. And the key characteristics of this prophet is reception of revelation. God's going to put his words in his mouth. And the dissemination of that revelation. He's going to speak them to the people. He's going to speak everything he's commanded him to say. So this is obviously, you know, interestingly, if you kind of jot down your margin, Acts 3, um, we see this is, is, culminates in the fulfillment of Jesus. Jesus is the prophet like Moses. Kind of fun side note there. Acts 3, Peter makes that connection. He alludes to this very text. But the point here is that the prophet is not teaching from a text. He is receiving and speaking direct revelation. It's not subpar. It's not second tier. It's directly from God, and it's just as authoritative as previous scripture. And that's prophecy in the Old Testament. Now, this is borne out again and again through the Old Testament, although it might look different at times. So what do I mean different? Well, sometimes... Prophecy is what we might call this sort of universal revelation or revelation that was given for all of Israel. So you think like the Torah, right? So Moses receives words from God, the ten words, you know, the ten commandments inscribed. And then the Torah itself, that gets written down and then passed down to Israel. So that's prophecy in the widest sense of that term. It's revelation, God's inspired word to the people that often was inscripturated, like Isaiah's prophecies or Jeremiah or any ones that we find in, in the scriptures. Other times, though, this revelation might be for specific situations. Okay, so if that was more kind of universal, inscripturated, others might be for specific situations that are not really repeatable, and they may or may not be recorded. In these situations, God often gives prophets specific insight. So think about, like, you know your Old Testament? Like, who's going to win the next battle, right? The kings would often inquire of the prophets for a word from the Lord about their next battle. It's still a word from God. It's still revelation that the prophet was, that God was giving the prophet, but it's situational. It's for this battle, right? Or, or you know, a different category. Another situation, King David was living in secret sin, and it was sin that he hadn't disclosed yet, but a sin with Bathsheba, and God reveals that sin to the prophet Nathan, and Nathan goes to, to David and exposes the secrets of David's heart when he confronts him. So again, situational, specific, revelation from God, or wider, kind of more universal, you might say doctrinal, revelation from God. So whether it was, it was universal or situational, the point is that prophecy in the Old Testament is always, um, is always revelatory. Okay, Always revelatory. The prophet receives God's very word directly and then transmits that word to God's people, Israel, and sometimes even the nations. So we see that clearly from Deuteronomy 18. But we also see something else about prophecy in Deuteronomy 18. Not everyone claiming to prophesy actually has a message from God. So, prophecy in the Old Testament needs to be tested. Just because someone comes to Israel claiming to be a prophet, claiming to have prophetic status, doesn't give them an automatic pass. Prophecy needs to be tested. This is very important that we establish this. So look in... um, Deuteronomy 18, we see that it needs to be tested for accuracy. For accuracy. So look, look with me again here in Deuteronomy 18.20. This is right after he talks about the prophet like Moses. He says, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, 
or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Whoa. And if you say in your heart, well, how are we going to know? Right? Like, how might we know that the, what, what the word of the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. In other words, you've got to be accurate. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. If it's wrong, you need not be afraid of him. And you need to kill him, essentially. <laughs> Because he's a false prophet. So what's the test? It's an accuracy test. If the prophet predicts something and gets it wrong, then they aren't mistaken. They are a false prophet. A presumptuous prophet, and that that deserves a death penalty. But this isn't the first time in Deuteronomy that we've been warned about false prophets and told how to spot them. Back in Deuteronomy 13, we're given another test, and that's the faithfulness test. Not only must the prophet be accurate, but he also must be faithful to previous revelation. Faithful to what God's already spoken. He can't contradict it. Look with me again at Deuteronomy 13. Got it on the screen, and that's tiny. Wow. Woo. All right, let's read it. <laughs> if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder... And the sign of the wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. See a theme? Why? Because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. What's his point? We see that even if somebody comes to Israel performing mighty signs and wonders, predicting things, then they come to pass. They shouldn't be trusted if they deviate from the Torah, from the commandments. If they violate one of the commandments that's already given, i.e., let's go worship other gods, then it's actually a test from the Lord for Israel and the supposed prophet needs to die as well. So the only point I'm making here is that the first category we have formed about testing prophecy is you got you to you test it, but you're not, you're not sort of discerning kind of wheat from the chaff in this prophet that could be mistaken, right? You're discerning between a false prophet and a true prophet. If the prophecy contradicted previous revelation, the prophet was not to be corrected and assumed to be a true but misguided prophet. No, he was considered a false prophet. Okay? Clear? Finally, we learned something else about prophecy in the Old Testament. All right? And it was predicted, we learned that it was predicted to occur in the New Testament. That's not all this text says, but it's what I'm drawing out for our purposes. Prophecy is not just an Old Testament phenomenon. It's predicted to happen in the future, and it's predicted to happen in particular in the day that God pours out His Spirit. So that would be the New Covenant era. We see this in Joel, and then it's obviously fulfilled in Acts 2. Joel chapter 2 says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. Now notice this. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Very important. Dreaming dreams and seeing visions is kind of part of this prophetic gift. Okay, Shall prophesy. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So what's Joel predicting here? He's predicting the new covenant. The day that God pours out his spirit on his people. Acts 2. 
And here he says that not just one or two select prophets will prophesy, but a wide variety of people will prophesy. Kind of echoing back to Moses' words, I wish that all the people of Israel were prophets, right? He was saying a wide variety of people prophesy, sons and daughters, old and young, male and female servants. So this widespread prophecy will signal that the Spirit is being poured out. So Joel says, it will signal that the new covenant has been inaugurated. And we see that definitely happening in Acts 2. We're going to look more about that uh, next time when we talk about tongues. So uh, already we're seeing connections being formed between tongues and prophecy here, aren't we? Okay, that was free. Back to the point. I just want to point out here that this is an Old Testament prediction. Follow me. This is an Old Testament prediction of something that we're going to see and we're going to find fulfilled in the New Testament. That means that Joel's definition of prophecy in the Old Testament should theoretically be the same definition in the New Testament when his prophecy is fulfilled. You follow me? That makes sense? Like this if it does, like this if it doesn't. It would be weird, in other words, if the, the definition just changed, right? When Joel's intending this Old, Te- the Old Testament category of prophecy as revelation from God, if that were to just change in the New Testament, when we see its fulfillment. Since he predicts this with the, with the Old, Te- Old Testament definition in mind, we would expect the definition of what prophecy is to stay the same. So, from the Old Testament, we learn that prophecy is revelation from God, it needs to be tested, and it's predicted to occur in the New Testament. This leads us to our second question. What do we learn about prophecy in the New Testament? Right? So, if that's, if that's the background, what do we learn about it in the New? And what we see is what we would expect. That the Old Testament definition of prophecy carries over into the New Testament. There's no indications that this definition's changed. And for starters, it's clear that prophecy means that people will have God-given insight into particular situations, just like we saw in the Old Testament. People will have, if they have the gift of prophecy, it's assumed in the New Testament that they're going to have insight into particular situations. God-given insight. Revelation, God-given revelatory insight. I have these on the screen. Okay. Let me just rattle off a few examples here. I'll wait till you stop writing. In John 4, 19, it's my first... I could multiply these examples, but I only gave you a few because we've only got a couple minutes here. John 4.19, Samaritan woman. Jesus tells this woman about her marital history, a history that she has not shared with him. We definitely know that. Probably hasn't shared with very many people. And her response, immediately after he says, you know, you've actually had lots of husbands, here's what she says. Sir, I perceive that you were a prophet. <laughs> Why did she perceive that? Because he had insight into her situation that was given by God. So again, New Testament, John 4, John 4, we see that very clearly, even the Samaritan woman understands what prophecy is. That Jesus had divinely revealed knowledge about her situation. All right. If you want some freebies, you can write down Luke seven thirty nine, Luke twenty two sixty four. For these same kind of expectations. Um, just so you feel it, uh, Luke seven, Pharisee, dining with Jesus, woman comes in, sinner, she's touching him. Pharisee thinks to himself, if this man were a prophet. He would know what kind of woman this is touching him. He would have divine insight into the nature and character of this woman. 
then, ironically, Jesus reads his mind <laughs> and then tells him, I love it. Oh, I love it. Yes, it's good. Another expectation, Luke twenty-two sixty-four. 64. Soldiers are blindfolded Jesus and beating him, and they're telling him, prophesy, tell us who hit you. So again, I'm just throwing data at you that prophecy is, in this sense, that we see in, that it's, it's insight in particular situations, just like we saw in the Old Testament. Clearly the expectation. All right. Over in Acts 11, I got this one up on your screen here, or at least as a reference. You see another example of situational revelation. It's a, a situational prophecy with the prophet Agabus. We're going to talk about him a couple times. Agabus predicts a worldwide famine, in, and he predicts this to, to the church in Antioch. And God enables this Gentile church then to take action from this prophecy and to provide for the Jewish church in Judea. And Luke goes on to tell us that the famine happened just like Agabus predicted it to happen. So again, situational, this time future insight from the prophet, New Testament prophet. Now, over in 1 Corinthians 14, we see another evidence that prophecy is still revelation and not some form of glorified preaching. In this passage, Paul's trying to explain how prophecy is better than tongues in the church because you can understand it clearly without an interpreter. Okay, tongue is a language, and so that means you're going to need an interpreter to make it accessible. In fact, Paul says if an unbeliever comes into a church where everybody's just speaking in tongues, he says they're going to think the whole assembly is crazy. Look at this. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Answer, yes. But if prophecy, or if, if all prophesy and an unbeliever outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. Notice what happens. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that, that God is really among you. This means that people prophesying in the church will have divine insight into the sin of this unbeliever or outsider's heart and that will cause him to fall on his face and declare that God is really among you. This is similar to what Nathan did with David. Now this is confirmed that prophecy is still revelatory in just a few verses later in the same chapter in 1 Corinthians. He's talking about how prophecy should be, should be exercised in the church. And notice what he calls prophecy. He says, let two or three prophets speak, let the others weigh what is said. And then he says, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, meaning another prophet, let the first, let me the first prophet, be silent. Right? So it's time for that one to sit down. God's revealed. Now, he's given a revelation to a second one. Time for him to stand up and share. So again, it's revelatory. But not only will prophets have God given revelation into specific situations, but they're also going to receive this universal doctrinal revelation too, just like we saw in the Old Testament. And as we would expect, some of this, some of this doctrinal revelation will be written down. A lot of it will be written down. It will be inscripturated just like the Old Testament documents were inscripturated. Old Testament revelation was inscripturated. Okay, so we could say that prophecy includes this universal doctrinal revelation. You see this in Ephesians 3. Paul says, when you read this, meaning his letter to the Ephesians, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been made revealed, sorry, now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So what's the revelation here? It's the revelation of the mystery of Christ, he says in verse 4. In verse 6, at the end there, he says, he specifies what that mystery is. And it's the inclusion of Gentiles in the promise of Christ. It's the fact that that we non-Jews get to be co-heirs with Israel in the new covenant. That's part of this mystery. Now, Paul goes to great lengths to tell us that this was not revealed to any past generations. But who has it been revealed to? He says, who, the, the people that have received a special revelation, 
this inclusion of Gentiles, is not just the apostles, like we saw last week. It's the apostles plus another group. The apostles and the prophets. And it's clear he's talking about, not about Old Testament prophets, but about New Testament prophets. Because it's the Spirit who's revealing these things, gospel realities, to these guys. So, what's Paul saying here? How does it add to our understanding of prophecy in the New Testament? Paul's essentially saying that alongside the apostles, the New Testament prophets also received this doctrinal revelation, this revelation about the gospel and Gentile inclusion. They confirmed it and even complemented it with revelation given to them. So the point is that the the prophets didn't just receive situational revelation, like, hey, there's going to be a famine, and then Agabus goes and tells them. But they also received doctrinal revelation that was necessary, as we'll see, for the very foundation of the church. Revelation that became inscripturated to make up what we call our New Testament today. All right, there's one more example. Don't have time for it. Revelation 1. This is another example of inscripturated prophecy. But you can write that down, look at it later. Revelation 1, 1 to 3. So at this point, after we've surveyed the Old Testament and New Testament, it seems clear that the gift of prophecy is a revelatory gift in every sense of the word. Okay, it functions the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So that raises a third question. Why do some people think it's different? Right? What, what's, what's the logic here? What, why do some, like Wayne Grudem and others, think that prophecy in the New Testament is different from prophecy in the Old Testament? I told you it was going to be a grind, but you got to you, get ready, okay? But you got to know this stuff so you can talk to your friends on campus. All right? There's a few reasons these people think prophecy is either something similar to, like, impassioned preaching, or it's like a second-tier revelation that's mixed with some error, open to being fallible. So let's quickly look at a few of these, these reasons, and I'll give you some comments on each one of them. All right. First, Paul tells us in certain places to test the prophecies. So we should test them. We should weigh them. And these texts are interpreted to mean that Paul is telling us to sort of sift a prophecy like you would flour, you know? To sift it and like keep, keep the bad out and just keep the good. You know, meaning a prophet in the New Testament can, can have inaccuracies to his prophecies. So Paul's command to test the prophecies might imply that the message is mixed with error. All right, we'll come back to it. Two texts. 1 Corinthians 14.29, he says, Let two or three prophets speak, and we just saw this, let the others weigh what is said. 1 Test 5, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Now look at this. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So it's argued, prophecies are fallible, they're not guaranteed to be inerrant, and that's why we need to test them. But, instead of reworking the definition of prophecy... It makes more sense to understand Paul saying we should test the prophecy to see if it's true or false categorically. Right? And then either receive that prophecy as true and inerrant prophecy or reject it altogether as a false prophet in the church. Remember, the Old Testament didn't have any category for a partially true prophet. This is strengthened when we realize that Jesus has warned us over and over about the reality of false prophets in the New Testament times. And we need to exercise discernment, he says. Many false prophets, Matthew 24, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray in these last days. In fact, the last days, the last days we're in are marked by false prophets. So the Apostle John tells us over in 1 John 4, that we need to exercise extreme discernment. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Why? For many false prophets, false prophets, have gone out into the world, and so that's why you should be tested. Because there's false ones running around. Not because your prophets are mixed with error. So the test is not to sift a prophecy for the good, but it is to determine who is a true prophet versus a false one. All right, that was the first argument. 
Second argument they'll say is Paul supposedly disobeys a prophecy in Acts 21.4. All right, so you can go ahead and turn there once you start. <laughs> I'm telling you to do all kinds of things. You're writing, trying to turn. Clay, have mercy. Have mercy on me. All right, they say that Paul supposedly disobeys a prophecy, which either means that the prophecy was wrong, or it means it's not on the same level as the rest of Revelation. Paul's free to obey it or disobey it. He's presented as sort of like doing his own thing, and he's not, pre- he's not presented doing anything wrong. So let's look a little bit closer at what's going on here. Okay, in this narrative, Paul, the apostle, is on his way to Jerusalem. He lands at Tyre, and he meets some Christians there, and here's what the text says. 21.4. After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul, language, through the Spirit, not to set foot in Jerusalem. Seems pretty clear. There's some brothers there, and they're telling Paul, through the Spirit, not to set foot in Jerusalem. Don't go there. At first glance, it looks like they're issuing a prophetic command, forbidding him not to go on to Jerusalem. But Paul presses on anyway. So did he just disobey a prophetic command? That's the question. Or does prophecy in the New Testament hold less weight than prophecy in the Old Testament? Or was the prophecy errant in this case, and Paul in the right? Well, if you look a little further in this context, we see something similar happens again in the very next story, but with a lot more details. And the extra details sheds light on what's going on here. Their team continues on their journey toward Jerusalem, and then they land at Caesarea. And in verse 10, prophet Agabus is introduced again. Okay, this is the second time we see this prophet in Acts. He's already proven himself the first time. Second time, he shows up again. And he prophesies that Paul will get taken into custody at Jerusalem. Look in verse 11. And coming, down to, coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt, that's Paul, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Okay, so he's essentially saying Paul's going to get arrested if he goes to Jerusalem. Then notice what happens. When the church hears that he's going to be arrested... They do the same thing that the believers did in the last story. They urge him not to go. Look, verse 12. When we had heard this, when they heard the prophetic word, we, as well as the local residents, began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. So they hear a prophecy about what's going to happen to him, and then they react to the prophecy. They infer from the prophecy that he shouldn't go. That's their inference. And that seems to clearly be what was happening in the previous story, too. The prophecy, then, isn't a prophecy forbidding him to go to Jerusalem. It's a prophecy that's predicting what will happen if he does. And then the believers who love Paul naturally are saying, Don't go! Don't go! No, no, no! Wait, wait, wait! And Paul just keeps pressing on. Look at what he says. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping? Verse 13, breaking my heart. For am I ready not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, notice this, the will of the Lord be done. So they're not contradicting the will of the Lord. The believers themselves are realizing, okay, God's going to do what he's going to do. Paul's not going to be persuaded, so let the will of the Lord be done. In fact, okay, if you, if you go... Way back, if you back up, back to the point where Paul first decides to go to Jerusalem. Back in chapter 19, we're going to see something very interesting that confirms this reading. All the way back in chapter 19, flip back there, verse 21. This is the first time we hear that Paul is ready to go to Jerusalem. Verse nine, chapter 19, verse 21, notice what it says. Now, after these events... Paul, here it is, 
resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem. Saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So did you catch that detail? Paul makes his plans in the Spirit or directed by the Spirit, under the Spirit's guidance. Meaning his decision to go to Jerusalem was a Spirit-influenced and a Spirit-directed decision. And we already know that in chapter 19, and that informs chapter 21. Make sense? Later then, the Spirit was merely predicting what would happen to Paul there. Not telling him not to go. Because the Spirit has already propelled him toward Jerusalem back in chapter 19. So a careful reading of the context shows us that the prophecy is not errant at all. And Paul is not disobeying anything. The believers that were telling him not to go were reacting to the prophecy about what would happen to him when he got there. Okay? Finally, there's one more text these folks point to as an example of error in New Testament prophecy. And it's our friend Agabus again. All right? He just hammering that guy, right? And it's the prophecy we just read in Acts 21.11 about the binding of Paul. So again, flip back to Acts 21. And they say that this, this prophecy is supposedly mixed with error. Agabus predicts in in verse 11 that the Jews will bind Paul and then deliver him over to the Romans. However, when the time comes, later in this chapter, it doesn't quite turn out that way. In fact, later in chapter 21, when Paul gets to Jerusalem, the Jews do seize him, but they're about to kill him. They're beating a snot out of him, and and he's about to die. And then he's virtually rescued by the Romans. It's the Romans then who bind Paul, not the Jews. And so people like Grudem point to this narrative as evidence that New Testament prophecy can contain errors. Well, let me point out a few things about this passage. First, we must remember that Agabus is already known and confirmed as a prophet, as an accurate prophet, with a track record of accuracy. That was back earlier in Acts. Second, we've got to realize that Luke, the author of this text, presents him as a legit prophet. There's nothing in this text, nothing in this story that would make us think he's got something wrong. Because he presents him very similar to an Old Testament prophet. He uses a prop, you know, the belt, just like the prophets of old did with their props, you know, that God would tell them to do, you know, use this symbol for Israel. He uses a belt Just like the Old Testament prophets did, he spoke. He says, thus says the Spirit, which is very similar to thus says the Lord in the Old Testament. Very similar to how prophets introduced their prophecies. And then the church believed this guy. I mean, they just believed him on the spot. I mean, there are no questions. Like, this is going to happen. So don't go, Paul. Because if you go, this is what's going to happen. There's no indication that anybody in this text or Luke himself viewed Agabus' prophecy as inaccurate or inerrant in any way. In fact, the opposite is the case. Paul viewed Agabus' prophecy as both accurate and, get this, fulfilled. If you go over, did I put this in here? No. If you go over to Acts 28, Paul interprets Agabus' prophecy as accurately fulfilled. At the end of Acts, Paul recounts how he was arrested in Jerusalem to some of the Jews in Rome. So he gathers these Jews up in Rome, and he, and he, he's finally, you know, he finally gets to Rome, and, he, and he's recounting to them what happened in Jerusalem, how he, was, how he was imprisoned. And he uses, in chapter 28, verse 17, he uses Agabus' language when he recounts what happened. He says, verse 17, I was delivered over, that's the same verb, I was delivered over as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. He's echoing the prophecy of Agabus. Paul clearly interpreted what happened to him as the Jews causing his arrest. 
And he even uses the very language of Agabus whenever he recounts this story to these Jews later. There's no indication that he viewed Agabus' prophecy as inaccurate or inerrant. He viewed it as fulfilled. And we've got to remember that when it comes to prophecy, we can't over-literalize its symbolic language. We can't press the language to a kind of scientific accuracy that we Westerners want to want to have in every, you know, every case. And that doesn't mean if it doesn't, if if there's there's a certain breathability, a certain leeway to these prophetic oracles. And these first century authors weren't envisioning this sort of scientific precision. Luke nor Paul seem to view Agabus' prophecy as inaccurate, and neither should we by pressing it beyond what the first century authors intended. So I know we've been really grinding this morning, okay? But I want you to have the data to know why people think that prophecy is different. And I sincerely think the data overwhelmingly points in the other direction that prophecy is the revelatory word of God in the New Testament, just like it is in the Old. So that leads us to our fourth and final question. A lot we're leaving out here, but is there a prophetic gift today? Okay, we've got three minutes to talk about this. Hopefully I've set you up, okay, with the data. Is there a prophetic gift today? Well, to answer the question, remember back to the two subcategories we've been talking about. The, the categories of, re, of revelation, of prophecy. Remember the specific situational revelation? You're like, hey, going to be a famine. And then the, the broader, more universal doctrinal revelation. We might even say inscripturated revelation. Those are the two categories. Well, we know with confidence that that category of doctrinal or inscripturated revelation has ceased today based on the fact that Paul calls the prophetic gift foundational in Ephesians 2.20. So to answer our question, we would say, is there a prophetic gift today not in the foundational sense of Ephesians 2.20? Let's look again there in Ephesians 2, beginning in 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built, the church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. By the way, those apostles and prophets who, in the next chapter in Ephesians, receive revelation from God. You're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Here Paul gives us this overarching function of prophecy in a metaphor. We saw last week that the gift of apostleship is a foundational gift, meaning that God ordained that particular gift with a time stamp. There's no apostolic succession in Scripture because the ministry of the apostles is a foundation-laying ministry. The church is being built upon their eyewitness testimony. That's the apostles. But the prophets listed beside them also function in this foundational way, says Paul. They may not have all been these eyewitnesses like the apostles, but they shared something in common with the apostles. And that's the reception of new covenant revelation for the church. And God chose and gifted prophets to be the repository of additional gospel mystery. He chose to use them in laying the foundation in the first century as he inspired scripture through them. And once that foundation has been laid, it seems to follow that the gift of prophecy, at least in this universal doctrinal sense, is no longer necessary. Just like we saw with apostleship. You follow me? So what about the other sense of the localized prophecy? Well, I'm less dogmatic about that based on the fact that I don't see any data in the New Testament that speaks clearly to the the cessation of that aspect of prophecy. But there are some additional observations that make me more comfortable with the cessationist position, even on on that um, situational sense, too. So I would say, is there a prophetic gift today? And it's likely not, even in that situational sense. Here's some of the the data in 30 seconds or less. Okay? We saw last week that leadership transitions from the apostles to the elders. Remember that? And it doesn't transition to a second generation of, of apostles. And it definitely, and it also doesn't transition to a second generation of, of prophets. 
Okay? This implies that prophets, as important as they were, were not the norm in Paul's mind for the regular post-apostolic leadership of the church. Okay? One bit of data. Next bit of data. When it comes to decisions and guidance for the church, we're told repeatedly to renew our minds so that we might make wise, biblically informed decisions. And nowhere are we told to seek a prophet for specific word of direction or a vision or to inquire of the Lord through the prophetic gift. This implies to me that while the New Testament canon was being formed, while the foundation was being laid, God saw fit to continue to guide his people through a specific prophetic word. And they needed it. And so Paul told the Corinthians, seek to prophesy. Because you need it. The foundation is still being laid. But once it's laid, it would make sense that we don't need the prophetic word like the first century. Now finally, as Paul writes some of his letters, his last letters, represented specifically in his letters to Timothy... The emphasis there is on Timothy guarding the deposit, guarding the revelation, on preaching the revelation, staying faithful to the revelation, right? Not to seeking new revelation or to even seeking to prophesy or to exercise a prophetic gift. And it's not in any sense, not, not in, the, in the revelation, like the, the universal revelation sense or in that situational sense. So these observations lead me to say that the gift of prophecy has certainly ceased when it comes to the universal foundational sense and very likely has ceased even in its situational uses that were mentioned earlier. So, we're done. Yeah. Whew. I'm just going to land that plane and hope it doesn't blow up. Okay? I'm sure that raises questions. There's a lot that we didn't say that we could have said. But my goal was to give you as close as a cat categories of scriptures I could that will guide you in the rest of the texts, okay? If you have questions, again, we'd love to talk about it. We're going to keep milking the implications of this stuff later, okay, as we get on in our series. All right, you're dismissed.